Welcome to MonarchCast. This is the podcast where we talk about all things monarchy. I'm Claire. I'm Allie. And today we are going to be delving into the rise of the House of Windsor. Yes. It should be interesting. So we've covered Queen Elizabeth. We've covered some of the other Windsors. I think some of the more notorious ones. Um, Mm -hmm. Edward VIII. We did a little romance analysis with Queen yeah. Margaret and Prince Harry. So Princess thought, Margaret. Princess Oh uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Princess She Margaret. wishes. <laughs> so we thought we'd go back and do a little name analysis today. So how are you? I'm good. Um I my brain is full of Edwards and Birdies and Georges. <laughs> I know. There's too many of them. We need some originality. That's what I keep thinking about with this new baby that's coming is... But we didn't get it. Like, Prince George is another George. I'm just like, ah. I mean, they kind of went a little... A little out there with Charlotte, but again, that's that's a pretty historical name, and I like very afraid they're gonna name this baby Mary if it's a girl. <sighs> yeah. Even Victoria wouldn't be bad because there's haven't been too many of those. But it's it wasn't it crazy that you have a baby and they probably present you with a list and they say yeah. you can pick you can pick from this list of six names. <laughs> And I feel bad for Kate Middleton, who um, probably grew up up like, I like Stephanie. Yeah, and they already used, like, um, with Charlotte, I think they already used Diana as one of her middle names. And, Mm. um, like, I don't think they're going to put, like, a Carol or a Pippa in there, you know? So, like, I don't – yeah, it's interesting. I could see a Philippa. Maybe, yeah. But it is interesting, like, the list is, like, extremely short, like – Probably they wouldn't go with Elizabeth, but like Alice or Anne or Mary or, you know, it's like there's five names they can choose from. It doesn't really help. And if it's a boy. Well, who knows? (laughs) It'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, they probably would stay away from David. But other than that, I don't know. God, what if it's another Albert? I can't. No, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> I can't talk about another birdie. <laughs> okay, so we will probably be chatting about this in a few weeks because um, she is due at the end of the month. So um, I know I had quite a scare at Whole Foods this morning. They had some kind of English cheddar out for a sample, and it said, celebrate the birth of the future royal oh heir. And I was like, oh, my God, what did I miss? <laughs> But it was just it was just some English cheddar. It was just like a promo opportunity. Yeah, even yeah, Whole Foods I, getting in on all this. So I, I um, thought I had missed something important though. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean there was some stuff about um, the royal baby that I saw in the news this week, but mostly about how um, Charlotte is going to make history when the new baby's born because regardless of gender, she'll remain she'll retain her place in the succession order, um, which historically had she been born a girl and her little sibling would have been a boy he would have knocked her down the line of succession um so does but that with, mean that if prince andrew passes away after charles becomes king and will becomes the prince of wales is charlotte going to become the duchess of york that would be an interesting question i don't know um they would well if will's the prince of wales then the Duke of York would be George. Oh, but I forgot about They George. wouldn't do that until he's much older, so likely 
I mean, it's an interesting question. Like, it would all depend on the timing, but it wouldn't likely go to Charlotte. But um, but that was because of the decree that Elizabeth passed, like, another succession act in 2013 before George was born, where um, regardless of gender, the birth order would determine the order of succession. And also, this is related to our previous conversation about George I. Um, she reversed... Um, the ruling where you have to be Protestant. So now if you're married to a Roman Catholic or born to a Roman Catholic, you can still rule. The, you can still become king or queen of England. I, actually, that was my royal oops correction. Oh, was it? Oh, you're, I'm sorry. You're half right. You're half right. <laughs> okay. So you well, can... maybe you can give us a better explanation. I had sort of read some gossip article about it. So, you so know. essentially she removed the prohibition from marrying a Roman Catholic. But oh, you okay, are, but you, you can't. are still required to okay. be a member of okay. the Anglican Church to sit on the throne, or at the very least, you can't be a Catholic because, and it goes back to the idea that if you are Catholic, the Pope has ultimate jurisdiction. But over like your all parents, Catholics. your parents could be Catholic, and but, you could choose to be Anglican. But like, it wouldn't preclude you from like no a, someone in the royal family, right? right. Yeah. So you can a member of the royal family can marry a member of the Catholic Church. That's fine, but a Catholic cannot sit the throne of England. That is still the case. Yeah, because the Pope would have control over the monarch, and that is improper since the monarch is the monarch and also supposed to be the head of the Church of England. And you can't have the Pope be the head of the Church of England. So if you were Catholic you wouldn't be the head of the church. The Pope would be above you. Right. So that's kind of the logic there. But yes, you're right. They did, uh, I went back and looked that up, and they did reverse the prohibition on marrying a Catholic. I mean, that was nice of them. It was a little too discriminatory. Yeah, I mean, I think that doesn't really fit with the times anymore. Like, it was sort of born out of this, like, paranoia that we talked about last week, and by the time you get to like 2013, I think it's kind of you have to reassess the situation and say nobody's really going to care if like if and Harry I, were to marry a Catholic, you know, like nobody right. really, you know. And the Anglican Church is well enough established that I think this fear of um, reversing the reformation that took place right that's centuries ago at this is point. sort of over yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's a good point too cool well I didn't mean to step on oh, your no, you stumbled there. right into it it was the perfect segue <laughs> yeah um do you have you I think well we do have some gossip um, yes and I I do feel a little dirty for jumping <laughs> into this but I think it was just really Really? It's hard. It was so hard to miss Claire. The New York Times covered this. I was blown away. <laughs> well, and I think this is one of those things that you never see. So this is so what we're talking about for those of you that don't know is um, on Easter Sunday, the Spanish royal family had quite the oh. public tiff. Um, and and this is what I mean is normally these people are rock solid in public. They do not break that stone veneer and. We saw a little bit of a glimpse into the family dynamics that you don't always mm -hmm. get to see. And I will try to describe briefly what the various videos showed. But essentially you have um, Queen Sophia, who is the wife of King Juan Carlos, who abdicated the throne in favor of his son, King Felipe. Now, that means they still retain the titles king and queen, but they are no longer the reigning monarchs of Spain. 
You also have the other player is Queen Leticia, I think is how you say it. Leticia. I don't I don't quite know how to pronounce her name, but she is the wife of King Felipe. And then you also have her daughter, Princess, I think it is Leonor. I don't I forgive me for my pronunciation of these names. Well, and they then, have two daughters, right? Like they two have two daughters. Yeah. And then I believe the other girl in the video is the cousin. I think she is another grandchild of Queen Sophia, but not her other okay. daughter. Although I could okay. be wrong. I could be wrong. So um, Princess Leonor is the one that plays into this. So in the video, you see Queen Sophia with her two granddaughters pausing in the aisle of the church and it looks like she's trying to take a photo and Queen Leticia um, steps in front of them to block the shot and then goes up to her and speaks to her and the grandmother is has quite the iron grip on the shoulder of her granddaughter yeah. and then she goes she goes to push her grandmother's arm off her and then Leticia goes to run her hand down her hair and Queen Sophia bats her arm away oh my god and then and then you see King Felipe come over, and they both look at him, and it looks like they're arguing. So, and he kind of like puts a hand on his wife, like calm down. Yes. <laughs> like, so, and it's really interesting because, of course, this is we're playing video assumption here. You yeah, know, we have yeah. No well, dialogue, but but what I read, um, and you could jump in if you read something different, is. Well, I tried to read more, but all the links went to like Spanish sites and I was like, uh, mystery remains a mystery. I can't understand this. Spanish gossip about the royal family puts England to shame. I mean, they are constant tabloid fodder and um, I believe King Felipe is quite popular, but his wife is not. Um, And part of the reasoning for that is she is the first commoner to sit on the Spanish throne as queen consort. She was a journalist before she married him and she's also divorced. So we've kind of got a little bit of a Meghan Markle situation happening here. But she's um, too modern for the Spanish people. <laughs> well, and, and I think she gets a lot of hate in the press because from what I understand is when they announced their engagement, nobody even knew that they were dating. And as a journalist, some members of the Spanish press felt like she had betrayed them by not giving anybody an exclusive. So that's one yeah. angle I read into this. The other angle is that there is a lot going on in the Spanish royal family. One of the reasons why the king abdicated is because th- he is at the center or his children, two of his children are at the center of a corruption scandal oh, involving yeah. embezzling his daughter, right? Yes. Yeah. And he was already kind of unpopular. So they basically gave the throne to his son, who was very popular, to essentially save the monarchy now this is like what people want to happen with William and Charles yes well some people yeah so apparently Queen Sophia is supporting all members of her family regardless of how corrupt they are (laughs) but it's thought not to be that friendly with her daughter-in-law the other queen so what I read was that actually when Letizia like joined the royal family Sophia actually was very welcoming and like very helpful to her as like this is like as her entrance into royal life you know like she acted kind of as a mentor but that after the birth of the grandkids their relationship has like deteriorated as it could do just because of like a typical mother-in-law daughter-in-law relationship where like you know you feel like your mother-in-law is too invasive in how you're raising your children and I mean it's probably just a typical you know dynamic in that way and it's really interesting though in that obviously we don't know the dynamics there's a lot of public opinion and probably the 
behind the scenes story is probably a little different than what's been presented. But from what I understand is the um, king and queen are very protective of their children. And it, it had to do with the fact that she did not want her taking an unsanctioned photo op yeah. inside the church. They were going to take photos outside. And I think that's what you're seeing is her charging over there and saying, what are you doing? And grandma saying, whatever the hell I want. And that's, yeah. that's the tension. And what you see, I think, is a lot of a history of tension boiling over in that one moment. And what's also interesting about this is that her daughter, Princess Leonor, is the Princess of Asturias, I think is the um, title. And essentially that is the equivalent of the Prince of Wales. So she is the crown princess. She's a higher rank than her grandmother. Her grandmother had no right technically to be manhandling her. Um, but of course, you know, it's who they are by rank and who they are in family dynamics, of course don't maybe always mesh but that was that I thought was kind of an interesting um point that I didn't really see brought up is the um breach of protocol right right yeah and that's what's so interesting about these people is like that the gossip here isn't necessarily what happened it's it's that it happened at all the breach of protocol the dropping of the veneer the public veneer I mean, because we're not talking about a grandmother, a daughter-in-law, and a granddaughter. We're talking about people that are trained from birth, for most of them, to present a united front and a very public image. And we could even lump Queen Leticia in there because she is a former, she is a public figure. Before right, she, right. Before she married into the family, she is fully media trained. So she knows how to act in front of the camera. So I think it's just really interesting that you see the slip in that veneer. It, like yeah, you I mean, said, it was big enough that it made the New York Times. I mean, but just because, like, there was, like, this uproar and it was, like, crazy. And that I read the same thing where it was, like, really – it looked really bad, but she was trying to protect her daughter from, like, this photo op. But um, it plays and, out. And, I mean, it's delicious to watch, but, like, it's it's crazy. I mean, this reminds me of, like, some of the coverage of the Easters of the Windsors, too, where um, it's – you're not just talking about, like, a family getting together. There's, like, all these extra rules that, like, sometimes you can't help – and like break them like apparently William and Kate broke royal protocol on Easter too because they were late because of traffic yes, yes. and so they arrived after the queen which is like a big no-no but it's like at this point it's like you can't get up in arms about that stuff right like sometimes and have you just you, hit traffic <laughs> have you ever seen that gif of um Duchess of the Duchess of Cambridge, oh, Kate Middleton on the stairs um, at with, Christmas. With um, Eugenie. Mm-hmm. Oh, where yeah. She kind of steps around her and she just gives her this side eye and Eugenie has this like smug smile on her yeah. face. And it's the same thing where you never see I always watch stuff. that and I'm like, what did she do? Oh, <laughs> uh, I think there's a, a history of bad blood um, between them that they've probably hopefully worked through. But um, I mean, that's the crazy thing is like, you know, like epic. Kate was around for a really long time Mm -hmm. and I think there must have been some sort of like honestly probably some jealousy on the part of like Eugenie and Beatrice because um like they're the only princesses but they get like no attention because like you know it's all about Harry and and Will and then like Kate comes along and like here's a new duchess and they're acting like they've never seen a princess before and like I could imagine there's some like pettiness going on. And I'd be surprised if there wasn't a little bit of good old-fashioned snobbery. Well, there's probably that as well. 
Um, but again, like we'll never know. It's just when you see those little slips, you kind of wonder yeah. what, what the hell is going on. So apparently Queen Leticia is being booed in public, which mm. so the public is not taking her side on this, which I feel really bad for her because if from everything I've read, I, I don't think she was necessarily wrong, but her mistake, her mistake was, was in was in addressing it in public. And that I think is, it's, it's almost like, it doesn't matter why it's, you let your guard down, you let, you let it slip. Um, but they all look, I mean, they all looked in that video like little brats. So, you know, I mean, yeah. Family squabbles never make you look your, at your best, but. And, and Queen Sophia, I did a little digging. So she is Queen Sophia of Greece and Denmark. She is a cousin of Prince Philip. Her father, I believe was, or her grandfather was the king of Greece and Denmark and either her brother, I think it was her father. I'd have to look at the title, but anyway, she is a first or second cousin of Prince Philip. So it's kind of interesting. These people are all related. So that is an excellent segue, Claire, into today's discussion. Oh, good. Because yes, Europe, all these European royalties are all related and... I think that's a big factor in what we're going to talk about today, which is the rise of the House of Windsor, which is the time in 1917 when George V changed the family name. And today we're going to talk about why and what that meant for the royal family and Britain and their relationship to Europe as a whole. So excellent work there, Claire, on that natural segue. Uh, You're welcome. Let's dive in. (laughs) Yeah. So um, as we mentioned a little bit earlier in previous episodes, we've covered a few of the Windsors and their ancestors. Uh, We've covered, you know, the history of the Tudors, the Stuarts, the Hanovers, and up to the current family, the Windsors. And as that might indicate that the family name does change, like this isn't an unheard of thing. Um, But Previously, these name changes occurred through marriage, such as the change of Hanover to Saxe-Coburg-Gotha when Victoria married Albert, Um, either death when Elizabeth I died and the family name changed from Tudor to Stuart as um, James I came to the crown, or religion when um, James II fled the crown and um, his daughters took over, but upon their death, the crown went from Stuarts to the German Hanovers. So... These are all very natural changes that you would expect to happen, right? Like family names change through marriage all the time. The House of Windsor, however, came to be for an entirely different reason. With And you had one monarch, George V, ruling under two family dynasty names. So that, that monarch, as I mentioned, was George V, who was Queen Elizabeth II's grandfather. And he changed the family name from Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, which was uh, his grandfather Prince Albert's family name, his German side of the family, to Windsor, which had been nobody's name. (laughs) So we're going to talk today about why he made this change. Um, Before we get into that, I want to go a little bit into what actually happened. So um, it was decided that Queen Victoria would be regarded as having founded the House of Windsor, despite the fact that um, actually she was responsible for founding the House of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha in Britain, or at least that branch of it, but for all intents and purposes, she was now considered to have been the founder of the House of Windsor. Um, they did run through a few other alternate names at the time. Um, they decided again, I mean, we, you could think, well, why not just revert back to Stuart or Hanover or um, something else? Well, Hanover obviously was also extremely German. Tudor was discarded because of the associations with Henry VIII and Bloody Mary. Smart. And 
Exactly. Stuart, they went against because one of them had been beheaded and the last one was driven from the throne before his daughters um, came to rule through, you know, like revolution. So they were like, maybe let's not go back for that. I think they also considered Fitzroy, but it had like a bastard significance. Apparently. Yeah, that that um, actually I saw that and that's I'm surprised they would even consider that because that is the surname commonly given to the yeah. king's bastards because yeah, it so, means literally son of the king yeah but i think they were like someone was just throwing out names and they were like well we can't do that um and i didn't know that actually so it's kind of like the snows and the sands and all of that on game of thrones i think only to the bastards that were claimed or okay. acknowledged okay but i know for example henry the eighth had a son named henry fitzroy oh okay and then Guelph was also considered, or Guelph, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but it was also considered too foreign. So Windsor was perfectly British, just like the castle that they had previously been living in. So they were like, well, let's just take the name of the castle and apply it to the family. And the royal family weren't the only ones who made a change at this time. Members of the f extended members of the family with German names and titles also changed them. So the Battenbergs became the Mountbattens, um, which might sound familiar um, because that is technically part of the current surname, which is Mountbatten-Windsor. Philip adopted the surname Mountbatten as well. Um, and then the Duke of Tech became the Marquis of Cambridge. So... We're having a full Anglicization of royal titles and extended family names. And it's not just that they changed their names, right? Weren't they also stripped of their German titles? I'm not really sure about that. I, I think because I think the titles that they had were sort of legacy anyway. Like the Duke of Tech was, that's a German title, but he had been living in England for, you know, a really long time by that point. Like um, the family was German, but also didn't li never lived in Germany. So I'm not sure if it's like if these were still active titles or if they were more like just honorary. And then also at this time, uh, George V also decreed that important royals didn't need to marry European royalty, which had been the family practice, but they were free to marry into the English aristocracy as they wished. So that was all kind of rolled up together in this change in the name, but also a change in the identity of the family as well. Um, so why did they have to make this change? I mean, this is kind of a an interesting event in the history of the royal family where it seems as if, you know, they're, they're arbitrarily making a change um, just because they want to, but that's not exactly the case. I think there were three main reasons, at least that I uncovered in my research. Um, one was a very immediate reason, and two that I think makes sense if when you look, you know, a hundred years later back at the broader historical context. So we'll talk first about the immediate reason, which was just the fact that the family was German and their Germanness was becoming a problem. So in 1917, Europe was at war, right? We're talking about World War I. On one side, you had Britain, France, and Russia. And on the other, you had Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And this became a bit of a sticky PR issue for the British royal family because at this point, they could still very easily be depicted as alien and German and not British should the public decide to start thinking of them that way. And this was because, you know, you're thinking, well, 
you know, we talked about George the first and George the um, second, both being born in Germany, but George the third was born in Britain. So since then, presumably all British monarchs had been born in England and were essentially British, you know, like weren't the family more British than German at this point. But in some ways they'd actually had remained extremely German even since the reign of George the first. Um, and this is because during the 18th century, the Hanovers had all married German princesses, so they were sort of doubling down on this German lineage. Well, and that's probably because they couldn't well, marry they were, Catholics. Right, exactly. I mean, there are broader reasons for it, but the end result is that they all married German princesses because they were all reliably Protestant. You're right. I mean, that... It's just continuing that that rule. So as a result, you know, Queen Victoria's mother was German. She married her cousin, Prince Albert, who was German. Victoria and her son, King Edward VII, were both fluent in German, and they both spoke English with a German accent. In fact, George V... Fifth- that. Yeah, they did because, um, well, you know, Victoria's mother was German who raised her, so she would have probably adopted her accents and spoke so much German. And then... Um, you know, they were all, they also were affluent in French, but they, I would assume, spoke German more frequently. Mm. Um, yeah, but she had a German accent. And in fact, George V was the first monarch since 1830 not to have a German accent, which sounds really extreme, except we're talking about Victoria ruling for a very long time. So really, it's just since his grandmother and his father. But it sounds fun to say, it was almost 100 years since a monarch had not had a German accent. Um, and in fact, he was half German and half Danish through his parents, and his wife was German. We're talking about Mary of Tech. So again, the family, not really a drop of English blood going on in there. In fact, uh, this Germanness could also be seen through their extended family relationships. The German Kaiser, who Britain was at war with, was a grandson of Queen Victoria. So Wilhelm and, or Wilhelm, sorry, and George were first cousins. And as anti-German sentiment arose, you know, the question kind of came up, like, are the family going to be loyal to Britain or to their extended European royal family? And obviously this is something that the family wants to kind of shut down, you know? Um, I mean, the anti-German feeling was intense. There was rioting in the street. I watched a documentary that mentioned apparently even um, Dachshunds were kicked when being walked down the street. Because they were German symbols. Like, I mean, this is how bad it was. I mean, but to put it in context, I mean, Britain was at war with Germany. In fact, in 1917, there was a bombing in London where they bombed the East End and and other parts of London, killing 18 children and 162 people total. And this didn't look great because the names of the bombers were the Gotha bombers. So they had the exact same name as the royal family and had just decimated the city. This is a PR nightmare, right? Like... At this point, it becomes really clear, like, the identity of the royal dynasty, like, just cannot be German, like, because you can't have any association with this. Like, the family has to decide, are we British or are we German? And they change their name and they decide, well, we're British. So that's the immediate reason, is just the rise of the anti-German sentiment. I mean, it had to have been bad enough where, you know, someone's coming to them and saying, look, you might want to make a change. they never... (laughs) I understand, you know, why we talked about last time they went 51 places down the line and and the first suitable mm-hmm. candidate they found was German. But it's funny that you have to wonder, did anyone ever foresee this happening? Because, and of course, I don't think anyone could foresee a world war, you know, the war to end all wars. But you have to wonder if anyone, if they just thought, well, surely they'll just assimilate. And then, you know, but look at George the First. He really didn't. 
Um, and his son really didn't yeah. either. It's not till you get a few generations down that they start to think of themselves as British monarchs. And I, I just wonder, you know, was the need to keep a Catholic off the throne so pressing that all of these other considerations never entered the picture? Because because you have to wonder, you know, I mean, I mean, we see this you put a German on the throne and then as you say, they keep marrying Germans and, you know, Prince, Prince Albert is widely considered to have brought even more German influence into the British court because Mm -hmm. Christmas trees. Yes, exactly. Christmas trees. he, (laughs) He had a lot of influence over Victoria's court. And I guess you have to wonder at what point if the public didn't see this as a problem I don't know. It just surprises me that no one ever considered this to be an issue. Well, it's all about timing because, you know, you're talking about assimilation and and by most by most accounts they did assimilate, right? Like Victoria was considered the British queen. She was a symbol of England and the empire for a very long time. Um, you know, her popularity waxed and waned, but she was the British queen and the British people identified her as their queen with no problem. And this this Germanness continues in, you know, you're saying the influences to the court and all of that, but also remember, this was all very private. Like, the public wasn't, didn't have access to traditions and court practices in the way that we, they might be aware of by the beginning of the 19th century or the 20th century, you know? Like, it's, as it opens up, then it becomes more of a PR issue because before, like, everyone kind of knows, like, where the family came from, but they've been in power for 200 years at this point. It's like, well, they're, you know, they sure they came from Germany originally, but they're British at this point. I mean, why wouldn't they be? This is the whole point of like, you know, this is what happens when anyone immigrates, right? Like you, you're from somewhere and you can still retain that little bit of identity, but also become you adopt the identity of the place that you live. I mean, this was going on, but it only became a problem in that Germany became an enemy and people could now look at the history of the royal family and find something to complain about, you know? And so you're kind of trying to cut that off at the past whereas previously no one cared that they were part of the German family now that I'm thinking about that I don't think that that's necessarily true and one day when we talk about Queen Victoria we can probably dive into this a little bit but I seem to remember I think there was some pushback from parliament when she decided to marry Albert I do believe that there were a few members who did not want her to because he was considered too German that could be that could be true, and um, now that would be something. That but I think the family as a whole, it wasn't considered a problem. And this brings me into my second point, and the in the reason that this wasn't really considered a problem is that, especially within the family, the view of monarchy as a whole was like it wasn't this like British thing, right? Like it was just this part of a larger system of European Protestant monarchy, you know, like England was just one family in a, in a small family unit in a larger family unit all across Europe, you know, the so-called like monarchy club of Europe where they're all related. And this changing from this German identity to British is also you could see it as a result of George V's desire for a larger break with Europe as a whole, and then as a consequence, the monarchy club that essentially his family is a part of. Because he did, you know, he was raised 
a little bit in a less worldly way than his um, father had been. And so like he didn't learn German or French very well. Um, he was only fluent in English. He didn't travel a lot to Europe. He didn't enjoy traveling to Europe. He, When he was young, he traveled across British territories and really had more of an affinity for the empire than Europe as a whole. And so maybe, you know, as you're going to war with Europe, then he's also deciding, well, maybe we don't have to be a part of this system. And as World War I, you know, intensified, it basically broke all the old ties that had bound Europe together. And a lot, but the interesting thing from the royal perspective is these ties aren't just political, they're familial as well. From England to Germany to Scandinavia to Russia, like eight of Victorian Albert's nine children had married into European royal families. So basically all of her grandchildren or great-grandchildren were sitting on most of the thrones of Europe because cousins were marrying each other. You know, it's like they're all trying to go find Protestants and there's no, you know, stigma against marrying your first cousin. So that happened quite a bit. I mentioned earlier that George was cousin to the Kaiser, but he was also first cousins with Tsar Nicholas II. So this global conflict of World War I was also just essentially a giant family squabble. Um, the Germans and the Habsburgs were on one side and the British and the Russian Tsars were on the other. So it's just Queen Victoria's offspring fighting amongst each other. Um, and you might think, well, surely this family connection could have helped prevent war, but it didn't really like help anything because George, you know, he would write to his cousins and urge them to restrain themselves and don't go to war, but neither listened. And then finally, you know, he wanted to stay, he wanted Britain to stay neutral as long as possible, but by 1914, Britain's entering the war on behalf of France, and George is now finding himself in this position of being both commander-in-chief of his military, although, like, minimally, like, you know, ceremonial, he's a, he's a constitutional monarch, unlike these other cousins of his, so he's not doing the actual work of, you know, running the government, but he's also the head of the empire and Britain, but he's also part of this wider royal family. And that's a really interesting position to find yourself in, you know, um, especially as someone with no real political power. And so as the war continues and like shatters all of these old ties, like by the end of it, George has kind of begun fundamental, like this fundamental repositioning of the family more towards Britain and the empire and away from this European identity and his like royal cousinhood and personal personal friendships, you know. When you also, also, I just kind of wonder if England had been a little bit more of an absolute monarchy or less of a constitutional monarchy, if the monarch actually had retained some power, if they would have been allowed to stay standing. Because I don't think that that populist sentiment was, it was certainly more intense in the, um, Kingdoms where the monarchy fell, you know, the Bolsheviks 100% yeah. won that one. But I wonder, you know, the sentiment was widespread. But well, I think was. maybe and, in and England, they had the monarchy already had ceded a lot of its power. So they were a little bit safer. You're absolutely right. And that ties into my third point. Oh, a look bit at too, me today. Where, yeah, I know. <laughs> but it's, you know, because it's, a lot of it has to do with the type of monarchy that Britain was, and but also the type of monarch that George was. But um, in the meantime, I'm going to wrap up this part about the larger European um, question. You know, as as the war is kind of erupting and proceeding, and, and, and we've talked before about the horror of World War I and how it was basically like traumatic for all of Europe. You know, as awful as it was and as, as 
as much as it's shattering Europe apart, it actually did kind of a lot to solidify some of the the bonds of the empire, um, which because, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Canada all had significant forces in the war and significant losses as well. So they're banding together to fight on behalf of Britain. Britain enters the war in the first place because they're part of the Triple Entente with France and Russia. Um, and, you know, and these Ententes and alliances, they... They held some water, but, you know, like, interestingly, Italy was also allied with Germany and the Habsburgs, but they didn't enter the war on their side. But you're seeing, like, the larger political um, ties overrunning some of the more familial ties that they have. And and also, like, like you were saying, you know, the Kaiser and the Tsar were more autocratic, absolute monarchs, and um, perhaps it became evident to George that that wasn't a model to try to emulate and follow. I think all of this was just a lesson to him of the old system sound is, sounds great, but look what just happened. And I don't want to identify my family and my dynasty and my legacy with trying to hold on to this too much. So as he's doing this, you know, as he's retreating from this European identity a little bit, he very actively is aligning the monarchy more closely with the British people, like actively promoting the monarchy as a force for good, which is something that we see them doing today. You know, they're active in public works and charities and basically it operates as a system of good works as opposed to just like reigning a country, you know, as tying into this kind of PR questions that were coming up. Um, he appointed a full-time press secretary in 1918. Um, he kind of threw the public a bone and reinvented the Royal wedding. Um, it had previously, they'd held the weddings in the privacy of Windsor or the chapel Royal, but they moved them out into the streets and were like, we're going to have a party with the public with full processions before and after the ceremonies and services could be conducted in Westminster Abbey. Hmm. Um, this started with princess Mary in 1922 she married Viscount Lascelles, and I am dying to know if this is an ancestor of Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> and in 1923, the Duke of York and Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lyon uh, also married in the Abbey. And this was notable because it's the first time a prince of the royal house had been married in the Abbey for 500 years. So they're really making these ceremonies more of a spectacle and making the people feel more a part of the royal family, which is a genius PR move, right? Like if you want them to get invested in the existence and the continuation of this um, monarchy, then make them feel a part of it, you know? Um, I also want to mention that tying into his decree that the family members didn't need to marry European royalty, um, both Lascelles and um, Lady Elizabeth were members of British aristocratic families. Um, so the monarchy is essentially becoming less royal, but more British. And this he goes also, back to our discussion of were they commoners? Right, exactly. Um, I think at the time they weren't considered yeah, they royal, were, but they weren't considered yeah. common either. And then also, as with the creation of the BBC, he began the annual tradition of the Christmas broadcast. And apparently he was really good on the radio. Hmm. <laughs> so um, turns out some of his speeches were actually like, he was like a great orator and like broadcaster. And so like he was the first monarch to have collections of his speeches actually printed. And distributed. Yeah, everything I've ever read about him, it seems like he was a pretty beloved king. You know, there's a reason why um, Prince Albert, after the abdication of Edward VIII, became George VI. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that anything they could do to tie him into that memory, just going well, back to our, our previous Edward VIII episode, you know, I just think it 
everything you're saying, it kind of makes sense why they'd want to associate with that. Yeah. And just a quick sidebar, like he actually was never, he didn't have any expectation of becoming king until he was 26 years old and his older brother died. Um, so he was never yeah, supposed to be Mary king. Mary of Tech was originally engaged to him too, I think. Yes, she was. And um, so, you know, he kind of like wasn't ever expecting to be king, but he turned out to be a pretty good one. Apparently he was personally kind of boring, but like he was ultimately successful maybe because of that. And, you know, he actually celebrated a silver jubilee. He was the first monarch, I think, ever to observe theirs. Now, you might be wondering, well, what about Queen Victoria? She obviously had a silver jubilee year because she also had a golden and diamond, or not diamond, but golden one as well. Um, but she was in mourning for Prince Albert during her 25th year on the uh. throne. So um, so she didn't observe her silver jubilee. But George V was the first monarch to do that. So he ruled for about, I think, 26 years or so. Wow. Um, yeah, he was ultimately a very successful king. You know, the, during the war, the family threw themselves into the war effort, much like the Windsors did later during World War II. You know, they tried to set an example, suspending court rituals, foregoing fancy dinners. Um, George V even gave up alcohol. Um, and they expanded that their public like engagements. That seems like not the time to give up alcohol, to be honest. <laughs> but maybe as a, as a <laughs> you know, as an example of we're not spending money on unnecessary things. Um, yeah, but dude, the yeah, stress. <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, and they expanded their public engagements, you know, to help boost morale. Um, Prince Albert even, this is Bertie, the future George VI, um, all their names are the same. Um, he was serving in the Navy at the time, and he saw real action during the war. Um, David was also serving, but more in like a desk paper-pushing capacity. Yeah, we covered um, because, that in his. <laughs> yeah, as the Prince of Wales, he was not allowed to serve on the front lines. Um, but, you know, this Britishness might have... this pivot towards more Britishness may have happened anyway because, um, you know, domestic issues were also a really big problem during the reign, the early reign of George V. From 1910 to 1914, and this is leading up to um, World War I, there were political and constitutional crises that he had to endure over adding labor members to the peerage, home rule in Ireland, suffragists, and labor unrest with minors. Um, so he didn't really have the time to like, or the desire to focus on broader European politics. He was like too busy trying to keep his government together. Huh. Um, so, you know, World War I comes in and maybe sends a signal of like, we shouldn't consider ourselves European anymore, but also maybe that would have naturally happened just by the focus of what's going on at home. And you see, because of all of this under his rule, like you get the idea of the monarchy becoming quintessentially this like British thing, you know, like associations with like pheasant shooting and like going out and shooting guns in the country at your country house and tweed and all this stuff were like defining aspects of his life. Like one biographer was really frustrated trying to write an interesting story about him because he said before he became king, he did nothing but shoot pheasant and stick stamps because he was also an avid stamp collector. He had That's one funny. of the most impressive stamp collections in like all of England or something. <laughs> but, you know, like you see them going out and meeting the people and becoming like this, you know, modern monarchy in the way that we see them continue to do. Um, and all of this is a result of, you know, the war effort, but also trying to just ingratiate themselves with the British people. But as you had already kind of mentioned, and we'll get to the third point, maybe the bigger reason for all of this is ultimately what is the goal of this family? And it's to just survive whatever you have to do, whatever the cost. It was probably a valid concern because 
of the four great power European monarchies that went to war in 1914, Britain was the only one standing after the war. Like the Kaiser is deposed, the Tsar is overthrown, you know, I don't know who the fourth, oh, the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire is ended as well. You know, everything's decimated and you've got King George still standing on his throne. <laughs> so, you know, he sees his cousins losing their thrones and he's probably thinking, okay, I'm going to do whatever is necessary to keep mine. And to and not, not be the one. losing their thrones, losing their heads. Well, exactly. I mean, I, I, I do wonder if an overthrow in England would have been as violent as it was in other countries. Um, the Kaiser wasn't killed. He was just sent into exile. But um, so, you know, you see this changing the family name. So we're, we sound less German, you know, pivoting to like this Britain first mentality and going out and being among the British people. Um, all of that happens. But also, you know, in 2017, they learned that the czar had been overthrown Um and notably, George didn't offer his cousin or his family asylum. Um, for a really long time, it was thought that the government had been the ones to reject this, but actually, it turns out it was the king. And he did this against the advice of his cabinet because he didn't want to offer asylum to foreign relatives and a, like a failed autocrat because his idea was like, this would look horrible and be resented by the public to be offering asylum to the type of you know ruler that they were very vocally against, you know, anti-Germanness was um, on the rise, but also, you know, democracy is growing popular. Even fascism is becoming fashionable in Europe. This is, you know, predating the rise of Mussolini. So he's kind of taking the public temperature and saying, I don't really want to be seen to be promoting this like antiquated idea of like an absolute monarchy. Um, and actually for the rest of his life, he and Mary really regretted doing this. Um, because yeah, I was, I was going to say, I mean, cause it wasn't by all accounts, they were relatively close. They were like best friends. Cousins. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I, and, and they looked wonder, like identical. Yeah. I've read that. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I can see, you know, this is one of those things where you put your crown before everything else, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, look, think of all the monarchies in Europe that fell in the first half of the 20th century. You know, you've got the king of Greece and Denmark walking around. He doesn't have a throne to sit on. And mm -hmm. he's just sort of in, spends his life in exile calling himself a king I, I don't know, like, I, I kind of wonder if he had done that for the the Russian czars, would people have really revolted the way that they feared? Or would it have just been like, oh, yeah, he lives in the English countryside, still calls himself the czar? I mean, I Who think knows? it was just his but idea kind of, of interesting the public. That they didn't. Right. His idea of the public mood was that it wouldn't go over very well. And I think it was already feeling very precarious, you know, like, okay, well, we already have this problematic German identity. We already are rulers in our own right. And, you know, this populist wave is happening. And so you don't really want to be seen as doubling down on the monarchy. And also, you know, when the czar was overthrown, it wasn't the communists. It wasn't the Bolsheviks who did the overthrowing, but they did, they, they came to power a few months later. And that's when, you know, they, um, take the czar and his family captive and then eventually murder them. So they take didn't know that that was, and shoot them. uh, it was a basement, but yes. Oh, it was a basement. Um, oh, yeah, but they field. didn't know that that was going to happen. Um, but obviously it did. So, you know, um, and, and actually in later years, George was pretty, um, 
obviously anti-Lenin because he viewed him as this man who had murdered his family. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. But, but he basically did sacrifice his cousin's throne and his life for his own. So um, it it had to have been a hard decision to make on a personal level, but it's also emblematic of this like pragmatism, right? Of just stay alive and keep my family alive and in place at all costs, no matter what close cousin I have to kind of throw under the, the train. Well, and that's that, it's, it's that echo that you see years later when Elizabeth has to tell Margaret, no, you can't marry. Exactly. Yeah. It's not the same life and death scenario, but it's the same, it's the same idea. Right. It's the same concern of what, what is the public going to think about? And, and, you know, and, and think about it. They're not just thinking of the public. They're thinking of the public and the governments across the entire empire at this point. Um, Although I keep saying empire, but George V actually was the last monarch to die as emperor of India. <laughs> so the monarch, the empire is in its twilight. But, um, you know, you had mentioned before, like, this idea that perhaps also the British monarchy was different than the other monarchies. And it's true. You know, they were a constitutional monarchy. Um, and George, on a personal level, didn't have the same ego that his cousins did. You know, he had been urging them to show restraint prior to World War One, and they just decided to, you know, go to war anyway. And in, in both of those cases, it was a, a case of the monarch leading his country into battle, right? Like, they were absolute rulers of their countries. And it could be suggested that it's this humility that he had that saved the monarchy. Like he was considered, like I said, to be kind of dull and boring and ordinary, but that turned out to be a virtue at a time when like maybe to keep things going forward, you just need this like steadiness and like pragmatism and like, you know, well, Britishness, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, keep, keep calm, carry on, like do that whole thing, you know? Stiff upper lip. Exactly. Oh, my cousin's been murdered in a basement. Oh, that stinks. Yeah. Move forward. <laughs> and know? and I do, you know, he did eventually offer asylum to um, the Tsar's sister and her son as well. So he did have some of the Romanovs extended family come to um, to England. But not I also wonder if he probably just didn't think maybe and, and I who knows? I, you know, I I'm speaking just conjecture here, but you do have to wonder if even with everything you've said about him, he was still a king and you have to wonder if maybe there was a little bit of arrogance there and he probably never assumed they would kill them. Right. Well, you know, so like I said, the overthrow wasn't, it was done by a democratic government. Um, but then, you know, then Russia has its own civil war and the Bolsheviks come to power and they want, as we see throughout the next century, you know, the communists basically try to wipe the past. So they kill the czar, they try to stamp out religion, and Russia has a pretty um, significant religious history and, you know, ties into the art. Yeah, and don't everything. they have their I own mean, their own religion? They have their as own well? branch of they have their own branch of Christianity, um, the Russian Orthodox Church. And you know, I when I went to visit Russia, I saw beautiful, gorgeous churches, like stunning mosaic work and all of this. And you hear these stories and they're like, oh yeah, the, um, the communists used to use this as like a shooting range. Oh like, my gosh. It's just, I mean, they, they had no regard for, um, history and, and see, it was very violent and that probably wasn't something that they would have seen coming. Um, but it did happen, but, but yeah, so that's the family's journey from saxe coburg Gotha to Windsor, you know, to kind of recap my various points, you know, the immediate question of, hey, we sound German, that's 
probably not not a good thing right now. And we're, we're uh, totally British. Windsor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Windsor. Like See, Windsor, do like you? That's castle. yeah, exactly. Like cozy parks and fog and everything. Like we're totally British. Don't don't you know Queen Victoria? What whatever. Um, Tea and crumpets, not beer. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, but then there's also this larger shift um, globally from you know, being a part of a larger European system to saying, nope, we're, we're just Britain and we've got our own larger system and it's called the empire. And have you heard of that cool stuff we're doing in India? And, oh, oh India wants independence. That's okay. Uh, you know, um, but focusing more on that. Um, and then also just this larger idea of, um, how to keep a monarchy alive essentially. So, and these are the questions actually, I mean, I think this is actually a really interesting subject in today's day and age because we talked a little bit about Queen Elizabeth. Undoubtedly, she is at the end of her reign. I mean, she's mm-hmm. she's. I don't think that that's disrespectful to say. She, no, it's just she's re- fact. She's reaching she's the ninety two years very, old. You're allowed to yes. say it. <laughs> she's reaching the end of a very impressive human lifespan, and even assuming she lives to be a hundred you know, these are the questions people ask about Charles, right? Is he going to be able to keep this going? And I think if you look back at how they have so far managed to do it, I mean, I I believe he will. I think, I, I think it will look different, but I think Charles has been preparing his whole life, not only to be king, but to be a king until he dies. But how long will that be? You know, I mean, he could live another 25 years he could rule as long as george v i don't even think he's 70 is he no he he is he is yeah we should when he if i was gonna say when he takes the throne we should we should do an episode on him but that could be like another seven years we should do an episode on charles at some point we should i think he gets a bit of a bad rap, but I don't think he's all that bad. But I think, I don't know, just going back to him, you know, it's been said he's going to take the regnal name, George. And I wonder if this is why, if he's looking back at the history of the monarchy and the the name George is synonymous with keeping it going. Right. I mean, I mean, well, and let's look at that. You've got George the first. He kept it going you know, hey, I'm a Protestant, I'll keep it going, we can keep that party going. And then you've got George V, who kept it going through the fall of every monarchy around him. And then you've got George VI, who kept it, who kept it going after Edward VIII and his shenanigans. So I, I'm not surprised that he would rule as King George. Especially no, I mean, after it has Queen a Elizabeth. good association. And as we've talked previously, Charles perhaps does not. Um, although why not just reset that, you know, like why... Why not just rule as Charles and, you know, put a positive spin on it unless they I, think it's bad luck or something? I think if he was 25, sure. But he's his mother has been on the throne for so long. I don't think he has that luxury. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if he no, was yeah. if he like Elizabeth could say, "I'll be Elizabeth. I'm 25. Look what I'm going to do." But Charles well, also Elizabeth has a nice connotation. <laughs> Sure, sure. But they, I mean, they, I think if we go back to the crown, you know, they suggested Victoria for her. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think for Charles, he's in his 70s. He doesn't have the luxury of saying, I'm going to reset the name of Charles because his reign, unfortunately for him, is a stopgap. 
and that's yeah. that's just the way <laughs> the way those genes <laughs> played out you know the longevity of the Windsors is is at least the women is crazy well and you know it's interesting talking about the recent history of the Windsors because in some ways that was exactly what George V wanted you know he went through all of this to keep his family um, legacy alive and his main concern was that his firstborn son was gonna just ruin it so he well. he actually said like you know his biggest his most fervent wish was that you know um the crown would go to Bertie and Lilibet and that they would continue what he had done and that's exactly what happened so pathetic words there mm-hmm. I mean I think no one was surprised that Edward VIII didn't turn out to be a good king. Um, I don't remember who it was that said it, but someone was referring to him and they were like, if he becomes king, he's going to ruin himself in 12 months, which I believe it was George. Ah, okay. Yes. George was not a fan of his eldest son. Um, No. Notably, George was also kind of a crappy father, but... um, Well, it was the Victorian era. You weren't supposed to raise your own kids. Well, I think even by that standard, they were considered a bit negligent. Um, But... Yeah, his his hope for the monarchy actually came true. And I think he would be really proud to see that, you know, all of this drama and stress that he went through actually paid off pretty well. So. And the worst thing that happened on Easter is Will and Kate got there late. Exactly. <laughs> and no one Could made a big worse. fuss about it. Could be worse. <laughs> Could be shoving your grandma on TV. <laughs> Nobody would shove her Elizabeth. No way. But no, no, no way. Um, okay, so um, I think next time we're going to take a break from the history and do a little more bubbly approach and talk about royal weddings, especially now that yeah. I've mentioned how the modern royal wedding came to be. We'll talk about those processions and public parties and getting married in the abbey and all of that. Yeah, I'll do a little primer for you guys. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I will talk to you then. All right. Cheerio. (laughs) Bye.